It's time for the All Things Strange podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Check out all of our wonderful links in the description on the link tree where you can find our Discord, our Patreon, merchandise, and more. This week's episode, The Gorman Dogfight. The Gorman Dogfight? Yeah, <laughs> this is a good one. As voted upon by our Patreon subscribers, we've got Three tiers for you. The first tier gets you early access and after hours. The second tier is for bonus episodes. And the third tier allows you to vote on upcoming topics. And this time around, the voters chose the Gorman dogfight. Yeah, I like this story. And uh, part of it is also like my interest in aviation. I've always liked planes and stuff and all things like aviation, you know, but like, uh, one of my favorite planes of all time is a P 51 Mustang. I love that freaking plane. Yeah. It just looks cool. They are bad ass. Although in this case, technically speaking, it was an F 51 Mustang, <laughs> not, mm-hmm. not to split hairs, but they're the same thing. It's just mm-hmm. after, um, after they became the Air Force, before there was an Air Force, they were the P-51, from what I understand. And then after the military broke the Air Force off into the Air Force, then they used different designations, I guess. I don't yeah. know. That's what I think happened. But it might be something else, like maybe Navy versus Army or who the heck knows. But the Air Force was yeah. originally under the Army before they broke them off. Yeah. Well, all right, let's get to it. Before we talk about the Gorman dogfight, let's talk about 1948 in general. 1948 was a big year for UFOs. There were the three classic cases that year, one of which is the Gorman dogfight. The other one was the Mantell incident and uh, the Childs Witted case. Those were three really important cases that had the military kind of worrying about it. Mm-hmm. Also, around the time of the Gorman dogfight, you have the uh, Air Force Chief of Staff, Hoyt S. Vandenberg, famously rejected the infamous estimate of the situation. I don't know if you guys remember that one. We've talk, talked about it before on the yeah. show, but the estimate of the situation, or th- that's something that's common in the military to get an estimate of the situation, but the infamous one is the one where they basically concluded that UFOs were caused by interplanetary vehicles and once it went up the chain of command vanderberg said no nah, i don't think so guys not only yeah, are we hell gonna no. yeah hell no not only are we not gonna sign off on this you guys are gonna burn every single copy but they supposedly a couple people kept some for souvenirs one or two copies may still be out there in the wild somewhere collecting dust in an attic or something Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But I always hold out some hope that a copy of this report will someday surface because that would be pretty Mm -hmm. awesome. P-51 
People mm -hmm. say that it probably didn't exist because we don't have proof of it. But on the other hand, we have some very prominent witnesses, such as Edward Ruppelt, who say, yes, it did exist. I've seen it. I've read it. So enough people have said that, yes, it does exist, and they have no reason to lie, that I believe that it actually does. The Childs Whitted case happened in 1948, like I said, a couple months before this case. And the Mantell incident was, I believe, if I remember correctly, all the way back in January. And 1948 was, that was the beginning of what is considered the modern UFO era. It started in 1947 with uh, Kenneth Arnold and very shortly thereafter Roswell happened. I think like a week or two after Kenneth Arnold sighting. We've done an episode mm -hmm. on Kenneth Arnold. We've done one on, I think we did Charles Witted, pretty sure. We definitely yeah, did yeah, Mantell. And this is the last classic case that we have not done. There are lots of secret documents flying around and the military was in a general state of confusion. Nobody knew what was causing this flap of sightings around the world, not just in the United States. They did studies mm -hmm. and analyses and things like that uh, in the USA and probably all over the world. For example, they did one called Study 203, sometimes referred to as the ghost of the estimate, although it probably has no actual connection to the famous or infamous estimate of the situation. Um, the frequency of reported, here's, so here's a, uh, a quote, the frequency of reported incidents, the similarity and many characteristics attributed to the observed objects and the quality of, of observers considered as a whole support the contention that some type of flying object has been observed. That's just a, that's a quote from the report 203, which goes by a couple of different names. The origin of the devices is not ascertainable. There are two possibilities. One, domestic devices, discs might be the flying flapjack, the XF-5U-1 or other flying wing type aircraft. And it's interesting that this was actually a classified report. It's interesting that they propose the flying flapjack because when I looked it up, it turns out there were only a couple of those made. I think there was just a handful of prototypes. Only one or two mm -hmm. of them ever actually flew. And they show up. You can actually locate exactly where they were. And they were nowhere near <laughs> any UFO sighting. You know, they just... They have mm -hmm. a, a roughly disc shape, so it's convenient to say, ah, oh, flying flapjack is kind of, you know, metallic and disc shaped, so it must have been that, mm -hmm. even though, you know, those were nowhere anywhere near in UFO sightings, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, two, objects are foreign, and if so, it would seem most logical to consider that they are from a Soviet source. Interesting. And this is actually a legitimate concern that they had, because, you know, Operation Paperclip just happened and we, we, the United States and the Soviet Union both had a mad dash to get our hands on as many German scientists as possible. So it would have yeah. seemed plausible to our military that they could have nabbed a scientist that could have developed an advanced technology that we didn't know about yet and that Russia was testing it over the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And this was this was during a period of time where there is all sorts of different uh, experimental craft that our, our military was was testing and, and trying to uh, develop. They were going in a lot of different directions as far as 
what they you know put energy towards trying to develop. They're trying out all kinds of stuff. So who knows, you know, what craft they actually like. You know, they're, they're, I'm sure that there must be craft that they were testing or experimenting with that we don't even know about. Never seen a picture or nothing like that. You know. Yeah, for sure. There's stuff that's probably still classified to this day. For example, there was a project. Uh, it was it was not in 19. I, I don't think it was this early, but in the 50s and 60s. They were working on nuclear-propelled aircraft, and according to the military, they were never able to make it work because the nuclear engines were just too heavy and too cost-prohibitive and all this other stuff. That's what they say, but I don't know if I believe that, you know? <laughs> yeah, who I mean, knows, I, man? Yeah. Only, the people, only the people that were involved in these experiments actually know. Right, and there's there are cases, like, for example, the Cash-Landrum case would be explained pretty neatly by a nuclear-powered aircraft. And the flight characteristics of that UFO were not something... It was not defying the laws of physics as we know them. It was acting like uh-huh. like a nuclear-powered aircraft that had a malfunction and was not easily controllable. That's what that one seemed like. So who knows? Mm-hmm. But uh, in any case, um, I find this... The Soviet explanation I find dubious because... The United States is really, really far from the Soviet Union, and it would be fairly difficult for them to deploy any kind of aircraft over our airspace without us finding out about it. How are they going to get it over here? Back then, you couldn't just fly a plane around the world that easily. Like You had to have like bases to land it on and refuel it and outfit it and repair it and that kind of thing. As far as I'm yeah. aware the Soviets didn't have any air bases, you know, anywhere near here, like on this entire hemisphere. So I find that doubtful, but I suppose anything is possible. But, you know, when you look at these cases, the flight characteristics of these UFOs were so far in advance of what we had at the time that I, you know, I think that in hindsight at the time that might've seemed plausible, but in hindsight, it seems kind of ridiculous. All right. Continuing. I agree. Oh yeah. Continuing with some excerpts here from this document, point number 12, it must be accepted that some type of flying objects have been observed, although their identification and origin are not discernible. In the interest of national defense, it would be unwise to overlook the possibility that some of these objects may be of foreign origin. And this, these quotes are just interesting because this is the exact opposite of what the military has always told the public, which is basically, it's fine. It's just, it's just a weather balloon or Venus or whatever. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, behind the scenes in these top secret documents, it shows that they are very, very concerned about these UFOs. And they wouldn't put they wouldn't be putting in the effort that they have to investigate this kind of stuff if there wasn't something to be concerned about or something to learn. It, it's like, just like the, one of the reasons why like the Roswell case is so interesting is because originally they did say the military did release that like, you know, a, a craft has crashed and it's uh, of uh, extraterrestrial nature. And then they changed the story to a weather balloon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. There are a couple of different letters and memos and things that talk about uh, what should be presented to the press, and they say that only explained UFO cases should be presented to the press. A very famous document is called the McCoy Memo, M-C-C-O-Y, the McCoy Memo, 
And this was from Colonel H.M. McCoy, the chief of the Air Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This is like, this guy's pretty high up in the chain of command. We're talking about one of the head honchos here. So here's a couple Uh of excerpts from the McCoy memo, which if you Google it, you'll find it. It's easily, it's easy to find. There remains a certain number of reports for which no reasonable everyday explanation is available. All information that has been made available to this headquarters indicates that the disks, the cigar-shaped objects, and the balls of light are not of domestic origin. Uh, disk or wingless airplanes are possible. Um, they ta- The engineers talk about the disks or cigar-shaped aircrafts being aerodynamically possible, but the, um, I'm summarizing that part there because it goes on for a bit, but here's a, again an excerpt. However, according to the current aerodynamic theory in this country, aircraft with such configurations would have relatively poor climb, altitude, and range characteristics with power uh, power plants now in use. And I forget the exact year, but they did develop, I think it was actually a, a Canadian company that developed something called the Avro car, I think it was called. And that was actually a flying saucer shaped airplane that they tried to develop, but it was nearly impossible at the time to get it to work. They, they just could not get it to work. It, it barely flew, like barely. And mm-hmm. you can see video. There's videos of it. Let's see. I think it's Avroca. I think I've seen this, the, the, the vehicle you're talking about. Like, yeah. it, it was hard to control as well, right? Like, the- yes. Extremely. It was the, the Avro Canada VZ 9 Avro car. Yeah. If you p- click on a pickup picture of it, it is wild looking. It looks like a flying saucer, but they never got it to work. But it looks 1,000% exactly like a flying saucer. It's pretty crazy looking. Pretty fun, but also, you know, didn't work. (laughs) All right, where was it? So anyways, they were just saying that, yeah, our engineers say it's possible, but, you know, they're not going to work that good. Continuing on. The possibility that the reported objects are vehicles from another planet has not been ignored. And in this particular document that talks about UFOs. That's what this whole document is about. That's kind of the only thing that they mention about uh, UFOs being from elsewhere. They just say that the possibility has not been ignored, but they don't really elaborate on that very much. (laughs) You know, so, you know, they're talking about it behind the scenes, but they were very, very reluctant to put it down in a document. The, if you, if you read up and you look at the time, what was going on, People were talking about it and discussing it. They just weren't, you know, they weren't passing it around in memos and stuff. They didn't want to go on record, you know, they didn't want Mm -hmm. to be permanently on record as saying something or other. They just, they wanted to speculate. Here's what the document says. The following conclusions are drawn a, in the majority of cases reported observers have actually cited some type of flying object, which they cannot classify as an aircraft within the limits of their personal experience. And that one's important. That one's also important because as you know, the military has very, very often has said that, oh, it's a weather balloon. It's Venus. It's a mirage of Canopus, whatever. Jupiter. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. B, there is as yet no conclusive proof that UFOs 
other than those which are known to be balloons are real aircraft. That's an interesting one to follow the previous one. And C, although it is obvious that some types of flying objects have been sighted, the exact nature of those objects cannot be established until physical evidence, such as that which would result from a crash, has been obtained. Now, take it for what for what it will, the fact that this is coming from the top of the chain of command, near the top anyways, and this happened after the supposed Roswell incident, and they are saying that they don't have crashed flying saucers in this document. Maybe that means something. Maybe it was just so secret that it was covered up even in top secret documents. I don't know, but that's just an interesting paragraph there. All right, point number 11. It is not considered advisable to present to the press information on those objects which we cannot yet identify or about which we cannot present any reasonable conclusions. In the event that they insist on some kind of statement, it is suggested that they be informed that many of the objects cited have been identified as weather balloons or astral bodies and that the investigation is being pursued to determine reasonable explanations for the others. That's a pretty interesting paragraph right there. You know, <laughs> they're just saying mm-hmm. in this document that this is before the FOIA, the Freedom of Informa- Information. So when they wrote this document, which was, I believe this one was top secret, they had no idea that this would ever go out to the public. They thought this would only be behind the scenes. And here we have it, proof of the cover-up, which of course I've presented before on this show in different ways, but they said it right here. They said, don't tell the press about cases that we don't know the explanation. And if they insist on talking about a famous case that's, that's happening, just make something up to make it go away. Just tell them it's weather balloons or astral bodies. Uh, maybe mm-hmm, we're getting mm-hmm. maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here as to what the explanation, the official explanation <laughs> for this case is. But uh, spoiler alert: it's weather balloons and astral bodies. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it, was, it was Jupiter. He was he was following Jupiter the whole time. Yeah. So that's kind of the background of what was happening in 1948, and those are some behind the scenes documents about the goings on. If you're curious to, to know more, we've talked about many things from this time period. And I read a whole book, um, which was Ruppelt's book, the, uh, the report on unidentified flying objects, which talks a lot about the behind the scenes action during this time. It's actually a really interesting read. So go check that out, or you can find it yourself. If you want to read it for yourself, it's uh, available There are print copies and it's actually in the public domain. So you can just go find a PDF of it somewhere. All right. It's definitely worth the read. Yeah. All right. So let's get to the Gorman dogfight. This occurred on October 1st, 1948, and it involved Lieutenant George F. Gorman of the North Dakota Air National Guard, who was flying an F-51 Mustang, generally more popularly known as the P-51 but man, that is a sexy flying machine. Yes, it is. The body lines alone and how oh, yeah. the wings sweep the way they the way that they do. Uh, oh, it's just it's a good looking plane, man. It just god damn that that bitch fine. And it was actually a really good airplane too. I read that 
it was in use up until about 1980 in various places around the world. It had, uh, I forget the exact top speed, but in this case, the top speed was somewhere around 400 miles an hour for a piston-driven propeller airplane. That's all, That's pretty fast. Single propeller, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it was a, a pretty high-performing airplane for its day. And that shows because it stayed in service for so long. All right. Anyways, this incident happened over Fargo, North Dakota, which it always, whenever I see the name of that city, always just reminds me of the movie. You know, <laughs> so that's your uh, friend of the woodchuck, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a damn good movie. The movie and also the first couple seasons of the uh, series there were pretty good. I tried watching the series. It was just so slow paced. I just couldn't. I uh, yeah. yeah. I I liked the first season in particular was definitely very good. I thought, but then it kind of you know it got a little shittier as it went on. I guess yeah. you'd say. All right. So this incident was a twenty-seven minute dogfight with a UFO. Dogfight, using the term loosely, because there were no guns fired. It was just sort of maneuvering yeah. and whatnot. But it's referred to as a dogfight though, because there was lots of maneuvering. Gorman was on a cross-country flight with his squadron, and after they did their stuff, they returned to base at Hector Airport in Fargo. Uh, Gorman himself wanted to log some night flying hours, so while his his squad landed, he remained in the air to kind of cruise around. And how badass is that, dude? If you're in the military and you're just like, you know what, dude? I got this badass airplane. I want to just cruise around for a little while. <laughs> Hell yeah. Why not, man? Yeah. If you're an aviation enthusiast, then that's like one of the, one of the cooler planes out there. So why not get some extra time, you know? And right. the night, the, so it's described that like the, that night, the air was very clear. There was no clouds and stuff like that. So, you, you know, it, he took it onto himself to have the opportunity and, uh, just get in some log in some extra hours. Yeah. And he flew around town, checked out the scenery, I suppose. And one of the things he checked out was a football stadium. I guess there was a high school football game going on. So he flew over that. And he also flew over a Piper Cub that was also checking out the football stadium. He was 500 to 1,000 feet above the Piper Cub. After yeah, I actually yeah, I, I, I saw, sorry to interject there, but I, like the Piper Club, I or uh, Cub, I'm sorry, I actually, that's a, a a kind of a cool plane. Yeah, most of what it's been used for, especially with the military, just like a, a training plane. That's like the first one you're gonna fly if you want to be, you know, a pilot. And a lot of people use it for training and stuff, but there's actually a lot of people that also use the Piper Cub in, in its different uh, forms uh, throughout the years as like a bush plane because the Piper Club is like super, super lightweight plane and um, you can uh, take off and land in very short distances. So it's actually kind of uh, funny, like, like with the Piper Club, if you don't have like, uh, if you're flying it yourself with no like a passenger or what have you, you actually, because there's two seats in the Piper Club, um, and the pilot is actually the second seat back as, as opposed to the first seat seat because of the weight distribution in the plane, how, how light it is. One person's body weight can offset the plane's balance. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny that like the, the actual like pilot seat is the, the, the second seat back, not the first one, you know? Yeah. But there, there's a lot of different incarnations of the Piper cub, uh, that are, are pretty cool. You know, like, like some of them are bush planes and, 
it's absolutely amazing how short uh, like takeoff and landing distances are in this in this plane. It's pretty cool, I think. And they're still in use to this day, by the way. Piper Cubs, you can still oh, get yeah. them. Like here, I just yeah. just at, just for S's and G's, I googled it and I found on AeroTrader there's a Piper Cub for sale for ninety eight thousand dollars. It's a nineteen seventy nine Piper single engine prop. So I mean, they're still they're still in there. They're still I mean, they're still in service. People still use these. It's a very, very popular model, as you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And there's still there's there's newer incarnations of it too, where like they're all carbon fiber and stuff, and they have like supercharged engines, and they can do some kind of amazing stuff. You know, uh, there's this one channel I watch on uh, YouTube, uh, Cletus McFarlane. He has a, a carbon fiber uh, cub, and uh, it's, it's it looks like the it's a freaking fun plane. Fun as shit. Yeah. 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 But anyway, anyways, we're going off into the weeds a little bit too there. Let's get back to Dude, the story. Any plane, I would love to be able to afford an airplane, but they are so expensive. Like that was oh yeah. Ninety eight thousand dollars. That's on the low end. Like they that's, that's know, cheap. A, yeah. a new Cessna is probably gonna I don't know, I'm guessing it's gonna run you six, seven hundred thousand dollars or something just for like a regular old basic bitch Cessna, you know? But yeah, well, and then like, no matter what plan you have, the, the maintenance involved, like the hours on the engine and such, like when you have to do like a overhaul of whatever you're going to have to do, it's, it's always extremely expensive. Yes. And everything in a way, in a way, rightfully so. Cause there's so much like safety stuff you have to be worried about. If, if you break down when you're flying, it's not the same thing as breaking down in a car on the road. You know what I mean? You can, you can pull off to the side of the road if you're in a car in a plane. That's not an option. You yeah. Can get a stone brick falling to the ground. Right. And the testing standards are a lot stricter, but well, let's, let's not get off on that tangent, but yeah. If yeah. Yeah. Every part, <laughs> just summarize, I guess every part for an airplane is like 10 times the price of the similar part on a car, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. But anyways, so Gorman flew around town, did the hit up the football stadium. You know, there it's, it's freaking North Dakota. There's not really a whole lot to see there at night, I'm guessing. So that's, <laughs> yay, football game. Let's go look at that. Okay, let's go home now. So at about nine o'clock, he headed back to the airport to land. And he was clear to land. And they told him there's a Piper Cub in the area that he'd already seen. While he was landing, he saw a light pass to his right. At first, he thought it was the taillight of another airplane. So he radios the tower and he says, Hey, hey, bro, I saw an airplane flying out here that wasn't the Piper Cub. It flew by me. What is this nonsense? There's not supposed to be anybody else out here. And the tower said, yeah, there's nobody else out there. And he's like, dude, I just saw somebody. And they said, man, you're straight tripping. You know, that's what this is uh, from the transcripts. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but yeah, they said, no, dude, it's just you and the Cub. That's, that's the only people up there. There's nobody else. And he said, all right, this is shenanigans. There's something going on here. I have to investigate this. It's my duty as, you know, an aviation enthusiast who is flying around in a P-51 on somebody else's dime to go fly, <laughs> to go chase this thing down. Hey, if you got the fuel, why not? Yeah. Right? You see a, a blinking light off to your west and, and on radar, it's not supposed to be there. So why not go check it out? Right. Right. Oh, and I forgot to mention, by the way, that Gorman's background, he was a pilot, a combat pilot in World War II. And even though he was relatively young at the time of this incident, I think he, if I remember correctly, he was like 25. 25. Yeah, 25 years old. Yeah. So that's pretty young, but he had a lot of experience as a pilot, even so. So he wasn't, you know, just some chump who joined 
you know, like a weekend warrior or something, didn't really know what he was doing. This guy's been to war. So anyways, yeah. he went to investigate the strange light and he, you know, he chased it. He got within a thousand yards of it and he saw that it was about six to eight inches in diameter, clear white and completely round without fuzz at the edges. In other words, the edges were, were clear. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a star. Mm. It wasn't like a flashlight. There wasn't something pointing, you know, it was an object, an object with sharp edges. It was blinking on and off. And here's a quote. As I approached, however, the light suddenly became steady and pulled into a sharp left bank. I thought it was making a pass at the tower. And this is a really interesting description. And later he, he elaborates that it was a circle, but it looked like the circle was a little bit squished. And one, one interesting thing that I could not find the answer to was that, um, he didn't elaborate ever that I could find whether or not the object itself was literally six to eight inches or mm. if it was six to eight inches apparent size. In other words, if you hold, held up a ruler on his windscreen, it looked six inches long to him, which would mean that in the distance, it would be quite a lot larger than that. Something six inches to eight inches in the sky would be friggin' huge. But uh, most of the descriptions sound like he means that literally the object is six to eight inches. So we're talking about a very, very small object here. Probably either very small or very large, but the way the description is, it looks like it's very small, but I'm not hundred percent sure about that. All right. I dived after it and brought my manifold pressure up to 60 inches, but I couldn't catch up with the thing. It started gaining altitude and again made a left bank. I put my F 51 into a sharp turn and tried to cut the light off in its turn. By then, we were at about 7,000 feet. Suddenly, it made a sharp right turn, and we headed straight at each other. Just when we were about to collide, I guess I got scared. I went into a dive, and the light passed over my canopy at about 500 feet. Then it made a left circle about 1,000 feet above, and I gave chase again. I'm just imagining myself in that position you know, where he's, he's like, all right, I'm going to go Mad Max on this fucker. And he's, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're going to play, we're going to play chicken. Yeah. Then at the last minute, he's like, uh, you know what? Nope. <laughs> Never mind. I changed my mind. So uh -huh. he, he almost collided with the object a second time, but this time he's like, all right, you know what, dude, fuck it. I'm going to Valhalla. I'm not going to turn this time, but the object ac actually went straight up as he approached it. He chased it up but he stalled out at about 14,000 feet. And when he, after he stalled, he lost sight of the object and it flew off and it, you know, was not to be seen again. And that's kind of the short version. I have a longer version of, of the description, you know, of his maneuvers and stuff that I might read depending on, you know, what the time looks like, but that's like the short, short version. And this happened, it, it lasted for 27 minutes he was maneuvering with this thing, trying to get close to it, trying to see what it was. Yeah. And it was, it was like playing with them. Well, in 27 minutes is not a short period of time when you're in the air, like in, in a, a quote unquote dog fight, right? Right. You're trying to pursue this object. 
you're, you know, you, you, you see that you, you, you observe a bright light that, you know, is flashing at first. And then when it's uh, accelerating, um, it, it becomes brighter. And then like, but it's like, so, so one of the explanations that Project Sign, who, who uh, was a government agency and in investigating, you know, UFOs and stuff at the time is before uh, Blue Book was around. They say that, you know, their explanation was uh, a lighted weather balloon, <laughs> which f- for, for an experienced pilot that was, was of the level of Gorman, I don't think, I, I, it just doesn't pass the sniff test. Like no. some, some athletes don't pass a sniff test, you know? When, it, when you're talking about uh, whatever. But anyways, I don't think that he would have been chasing a weather balloon. And a weather balloon would not have been acting as the object was acting as far as Gorman's uh, described, you know? Right. So it, it, that doesn't make sense to me, at least. I think the guy is well enough experienced where he knows other bodies in the air and stuff. And he can obviously recognize different planes and stuff. He's He's been around long enough. He's experienced it enough to where he wouldn't. If he saw a weather balloon, I'm sure he would recognize it as a weather balloon. You know what I mean? Right. Well, that's why I read those excerpts at the beginning, because those excerpts, some of them directly contradict the official explanation, which is a weather balloon, which, you know, we've already said. During the dogfight, Gorman pushed his plane to its maximum throttle, and he reached speeds as high as 400 miles an hour. He's just screaming through the skies there maneuvering yeah. around with this thing imagine how stressful that must have been because you know at some point you really he's got to realize dude this is not a normal vehicle i can't i can't get a beat on this thing it turns too fast you know there's a point where he turned so sharply that he blacked out yeah during the dogfight he didn't he did not notice any sounds from the object and he did not see an exhaust trail and it also noted it's, it was just probably a form or a standard question that they asked him, but he noticed no odor from it either. And I was thinking, well, h- how the hell are you going to smell it? You're, you know, in a, if you're flying an airplane, you're not going to smell anything, you know, from outside, probably. I don't know. He was so shaken well, up after the incident that it took him several attempts to land his airplane. He was, he was completely shaken up. Were you going to say something, ETA? Nah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Maybe later. I was going to I was I was going to say something stupid but then I didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Save it for the after hours maybe. Yeah. Now the <laughs> the cool thing about this case that uh completely rules out the idea of a weather balloon is that we have multiple witnesses. On the ground there were two tower controllers, Lloyd Jensen and H.E. Johnson, who saw the object. Johnson said, after passing to the east of the airport, it seemed to take a northwest heading. The object seemed to be at 2,000 feet and appeared to be traveling at quite an excessive speed compared to a Piper Cub that was east of the field at the time. No definite outline could be identified. Both objects were sighted at the same time. And Jensen had binoculars and he was able to use them and he saw... Here's a quote, an object or a light traveling at a high rate of speed, apparently on a southwest heading. The F-51 was some distance behind, and the object was traveling fast enough to increase the spacing between itself and the fighter. 
the object appeared to be only a round light, perfectly formed, with no fuzzy edges or rays leaving its body. The edges were clear-cut. No other shape was observed. The main identifying characteristic was the high rate of speed at which it was apparently traveling. So we have those two ground witnesses which explicitly rule out the possibility of a weather balloon because weather balloons do not do these things. A weather balloon is not going to be able to move fast enough to outpace F-51. It's just not, it's not, just not possible. But he saw it outpacing the F-51. He saw the dogfight. Well, and also, I think the quality of the people who are experiencing this or, you know, telling their experience about this uh, incident are high quality individuals as far as like a, a good witness, right? So these people are very familiar with aviation. They're, con- you know, they've been working in control towers for, for a while now and they're, you know, they're, they know what they're looking at. And this is something that is very odd to them, right? They, they, they were watching this whole thing play out. And, uh, you know, for, for these type of witnesses to say what they did say about the incident, I mean, it, it's kind of, it stands out, you know what I mean? Because they know what they're looking at, or they usually know what they're looking at. Yeah. And this is a different case where they didn't know what they were looking at. You know, I guess that's a, that's kind of a dumb statement, but anyways, freaking like, like they're, ex- they're experts. They're, they're high quality witnesses is what I'm saying. Well, so they're not your just everyday individual that's just walking on the street, not familiar with aviation. These guys are very familiar with it. And we're talking about tower controllers at a military base that have, they yeah. have to be familiar with just about everything at this, you know, even more familiar than a pilot who might only see a small selection of airplanes. They see everything, at least out of this place. There's probably top secret stuff that mm-hmm. only, that only stayed in very specific areas that they were not familiar with, but yeah, like you're saying, these are very, very high quality witnesses. But what's even better is that the pilot of the Piper Cub and his passenger also saw the UFO. The pilot was Dr. A.E. Cannon, and the passenger was Einar Nielsen. The tower notified them and asked them if they knew who the third plane was while they were flying, because they were obviously it's con- it's concerning. It's an it's a real safety hazard. You know, because if there's any sort of collision in the air, people are going to die. So they're, yeah, they're very, even if a plane has a near miss, a near miss might be, you know, even a couple hundred feet away, that's still of concern. So this was an extremely concerning case. So here's a quote from the pilot of the Piper Cub while circling the football field at NDAC at 1600 feet, Fargo Tower advised us. There was an F-51 in the air and a few moments later asked us who the third plane might be. We had noticed the F-51 and when we were over the north side of Hector Field going west, a light seemingly on a plane passed above and to the north, moving very swiftly towards the west. At first, we thought it was the 51, but... We, we then saw the light of the 51 higher and more over the field. We landed on runway three, taxied to the administration building, and went up to the tower and listened to the calls from the 51, which seemed to be trying to overtake the plane or lighted object, which then went southward and over the city. The object was moving very swiftly, much faster than the 51, 
We tried to get a better view with a pair of binoculars, but couldn't follow it well enough. Now, the interesting thing here is that they, you know, you have witnesses who saw the object maneuvering. The skeptics who who say that this was a weather balloon claim or Jupiter. Yeah, they claim that the ground witnesses saw the object, but they say that the ground witnesses did not see the object maneuver. And if you bother hmm. going to the witness statements, you can see that that clearly is not true. That's, I mean, I said it before, but the skeptics are just so incredibly lazy that it, it doesn't take, you could find less than five minutes. You could find the witness statements. This is a very prominent case. This is one of the yeah. more famous cases in the history of ufology. It's not that oh, hard. Yeah. You don't have to dig that deep to find the information. So it's kind of disappointing when the skeptics are so lazy that they're not going to even bother reading the witness statements from the ground people who they claim didn't see it maneuvering, who said it says right there in their statements that they saw it maneuvering. So it's, yeah. you know, it, it, but like I said, it explicitly disproves the idea of a weather balloon. Like that's not even on, that's not even a possibility for this one. Mm -hmm. During the investigation, I guess when he was interviewed a couple days later, Gorman said that the object appeared to be intelligently controlled. Here's a quote. I am also convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid, but not immediate. And although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, it still followed a natural curve. When, when I attempted to turn with the object, I blacked out temporarily due to excessive speed. I'm in fairly good physical condition, and I do not believe there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn and speed affected by the light and remain conscious. So that's a really interesting statement. He's, you know, he's saying that, uh, I don't think this had a human passenger in there, guys. <laughs> I don't think anybody could withstand the G forces involved. The, the official explanation, as we have said, was weather balloon. The skeptical explanation proposed by Donald Mensel, who was working with the air force on the investigation was weather balloon and a mirage of Jupiter, not just Jupiter, but a mirage of Jupiter. <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. Have you ever looked up into the night sky and seen Jupiter? Yeah. Have you ever seen Jupiter doing this bullshit? <laughs> no. <laughs> it does. It does move with the earth's rotation and its own, you know, rotation around the sun, I suppose. But very, very slowly though, you'd have to stand there looking at it for a long time to see it moving. <laughs> you know, it might move an inch or less in 27 minutes, you know, not, not any of this shenanigans. Another thought that occurred to me about the, the explanation is that the skeptics say that the witnesses didn't see all of the maneuvers that the, uh, Gorman reported, but I'm thinking that, you know, they were moving so quickly that it's possible that they moved out of view of the ground witnesses and they didn't see all the maneuvers just because they, they were going really fast. You know, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, a decent percentage of the speed of sound. I'd have to look up the exact number, but it's probably like 80% the speed of sound. It's like really fast. So they're not going to be, you're not going to be able to see them, you know, for very long at that speed, they're going to be over the horizon pretty quickly. 
I found this quote from Jerome Clark, who's talking about Donald Menzel's explanation, who, by the way, Donald Menzel was an accomplished astronomer. He was a Harvard professor. This guy was like a real scientist. So his explanation is kind of weird, but here's a fun quote by Jerome Clark. Classic examples of unscientific debunkery, especially those involving the fabrication of astronomical data, include Donald Menzel, a top-notch Harvard astronomer who, ironically, could not correctly calculate the astronomical position of Jupiter in the Gorman sighting case or other celestial bodies in other sightings. In the Gorman case, Menzel's main error was failing to account for the Gorman aircraft's 14,000-foot altitude, a mistake Menzel would surely not have made if it had been in an astronomical observatory at 14,000 feet. So that, you know, it's just a fun little quote. It's neither here nor there. I mean, we obviously know that that, that, ex- that explanation is clearly made up, but it's just kind of fun. I looked into the Blue Book file, and there's a little bit of stuff in the file talking about some of these things, as you might imagine. They, they did an extensive investigation on this case. So what does it say? First of all, the file is like really hard to find. It's not filed under, you know, if you go to the Fold3 website, you can click on the year, click on the month, and then you click on the location of wherever the, the it's not under there. It's under a catch-all illegible category, and it was, you know, somewhat hard to find. Just search for Gorman instead if you're looking for the file, and then it'll pop up. But it pops up in like a group of, like a files that's like like 1,500 pages of stuff. So it's kind of mixed in there with, with other cases. So it's, it's not, it's not an easy one to find. The cover page is, is, uh, I'm assuming it's the cover page is pretty much completely unreadable. It just faded. You can't really see anything on there, but there are a lot of pages you can read. And I found some really interesting stuff in there. So here's some excerpts. It's incident 172. There is no conceivable astronomical explanation for this much examined and much discussed incident. So right there from the file, it says it right there. There's no conceivable astronomical explanation. It says it right there in the file. (laughs) The plane was tested for radiation and they did not detect radiation. Now there were, there was a report that they tested the plane for radiation and they found radiation, but I also read that they later determined that that was a normal amount of radiation that you would get from an airplane flying at a higher altitude because the higher altitudes you go, the more radiation you're exposed to. So they determined that the the plane was not radioactive. But at first, when they found the radiation, they thought that the plane had, the UFO had been giving it off to irradiate the plane somehow. But according to the Blue Book file, that appears not to be the case. The Blue Book file also says that Rumors of Canadian vampire jets were investigated and found that there were none in the area. (laughs) And I was like, dude, Canadian vampire jets. That sounds awesome. I looked it up. It's a really cool looking airplane. It's got uh, like the twin fuselages. It's a pretty, pretty classic style. It looks pretty awesome. You'd have to look it up to see what I mean, but it is pretty neat looking. All right. Here's a quote from the file. The closest that redacted, obviously Gorman ever got to the object was in a head-on pass, at which time the object passes over him at less than 500 feet. It appeared to him to be from six to eight inches in diameter. It was white with no apparent glare and a clear-cut edge. It apparently had depth. 
it did not seem an exact ball, but appeared flat. So that's just a little more elaboration on the description of the object, which is pretty interesting. In the file, there are some drawings of the flight path of the UFO in Gorman's plane. It's pretty cool because you can see, you know, an estimated flight, you know, how they were flying around each other and stuff. So that's kind of neat. And here's, all right, here's another quote from the file. Mr. Redacted then stepped to the south window of the tower and saw the object apparently 1,000 feet from the tower in a northwestern direction, passing very fast over the field. Taking a pair of binoculars, he observed the object as it passed over the field. He was, however, unable to distinguish any shape or form other than what appeared to be the taillight of a very fast-moving craft. He did not... He well. The, so the file says, he did now, however... But I think it's a typo. It's supposed to be not. He did not, however, see the maneuvers carried on by the object, nor the F-51 of Lieutenant Redacted. He saw the object only once, and then only as it passed in a straight line over the field. And this is what they're trying, this is part of what they're trying to sell. Like, oh, they didn't, he didn't see it maneuvering. But if you look at the witness statements, it's just not true. I'm not sure why this is in the file, because they did see maneuvers. This particular witness may not have seen maneuvers, but at the very least, this witness saw it go in a straight line very quickly, which is definitely not something that weather balloons do. Um, only, only one straight line. Uh, Mr. Redacted heard no sound, noticed no odor, and saw no exhaust streaks in the air. So that's kind of interesting. It wasn't uh, a missile, you know? Not a missile. The object appeared to be only a round light, perfectly formed, with no fuzzy edges or rays leaving its body. The edges were clear cut. No other attached shape was observed. Uh, the main identity, oh, we are, this is the same as the other quote from earlier, I guess. High, high rate of speed, basically. There's lots of other details in the files. For example, um, the pilot of the Piper Cub delivered some Cokes to the tower witnesses. That's kind of cool. What a nice guy. <laughs> but he was probably trying to get into the tower where he's probably not supposed to be. So he was like, he went to the vending machine and got a couple sodas. He was like, Hey guys, I brought you some sodas. I can come up. Right. I like, I like the way the report talks about the delivery of the Coca-Cola. Cause it's just, it's so matter of fact. So it says he landed his cub at the Fargo airport and delivered some bottles of Coca-Cola to the tower operators. It just, these military reports are a lot of fun the way they word these things. I don't know. Are they, sometimes they have fun details in there. Like, like why would they even mention Coca-Cola in the report? Like it's, it's a detail that I don't, I don't know how that's relevant, but they put it in there. Cause you know, <laughs> so the next excerpt I have here is from when they went into the tower on entering, he overheard, this is the, the Piper cub pilot on entering. He overheard the running commentary between Lieutenant redacted and Mr. Redacted. He stepped on the balcony and watched the maneuvers. See this, the reason why it may seem like I'm repeating myself, but they're contradicting themselves in the same report. So he stepped on the balcony and watched the maneuvers of the F-51 from the southeast corner of, of the tower. He saw the object twice. It was headed in a westerly direction, returning shortly, and then going in a steep bank, then disappearing in a northwestern by north direction. Noticed no sound from the object at any time, no odor, and no exhaust streaks in the sky. And then there's a there's actually a really cool comic strip in the file 
in a lot of the blue book files, they'll have like newspaper clippings and things like that because a lot of these cases are not really well reported on. So the only source of information they might have is a little newspaper clipping. So that that's very common to see in the files. But this time it's like a whole comic strip, like several pages long that is uh, sort of like a dramatic representation of the incident. It's really fun. Uh, if, if you if you like comics, definitely check it out. It's pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, this. So the cool part is there's a page that's just a list of case file numbers in there. You know, they'll be under different categories, and this is categorized by J. Allen Hynek, who is the the uh, go-to astronomer for the pro- for Project Blue Book. Well, Project Sign turned into Project Grudge, which then turned into Project Blue Book. They kind of rolled into each other. They all did very similar things. They're all basically the same thing. So this one, he categorized under Category 3B, non-astronomical with no explanation evident, and evidence offered suggests no explanation. So a true unknown. And Hynek loved to explain things away, especially in the early days, this was well before 1966 when he was starting to doubt certain things. He was starting to question certain explanations by that point. But way back in this time, um, he was, you know, he was a company guy and he was more than ready to debunk anything and everything. So the fact that he thought that it was completely unknown, and there's different categories. One of the categories is non-astronomical with not enough evidence. This is a different category. Evidence offered suggests no explanation. It's unknown, according to Hynek, which is pretty cool, pretty interesting that that's in the file. So that's, I mean, that's kind of in a nutshell. That's the uh, the Gorman dogfight case. It's really interesting. There's a lot of good evidence for it. We have different witnesses seeing it from different vantage points, and uh, it was it was a really fun case. One of the true classics. It's been on the list for a really long time. I guess final thoughts for me is that um, it reminds me of the Foo Fighters and there are a lot of cases where orbs of light are seen maneuvering around, even in cases like the Michigan swamp gas case where you have structured craft that is seen along with it, we're seeing orbs. So this is a very common thing to see. And in this case, you have to wonder if it was extraterrestrial, was it some kind of scout ship or probe? Because at that time, let's say that he meant assuming Gorman meant the object itself was six to eight inches, not that it was six to eight inches, like angular size in actual, it was actually six to eight inches. That is a very, very, that's a tiny craft. We did not have anything at that time that could fit this description. Nobody did. The Russians didn't, we didn't, no one had a six inch across object that could fly faster than an F-51, you know, faster than 400 miles an hour and do all these tight turns and everything. It just didn't exist. I'm not even sure that we have anything today that could do this. That's that size. I don't know. I'm not aware of anything. Well, who who knows what the actual reality of the fact is like with the whatever the highest level of, of, of technology that is, is available to some of these like, you know, uh, programs that any government may be running. But from his perspective, it seemed to be six to eight, eight inches. Right. 
So, I mean, who knows what the actual size of it. It might have been a, a little bit bigger than that, maybe, you know. But the way that uh, this object object is described, um, definitely not a weather balloon. Definitely not fucking Jupiter. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's... <laughs> You know, it's it's a, that to me seems quite ridiculous. You know, if the testimony is to be believed, but like uh, one of the things that kind of interests me about this case is the idea of what actually aliens could possibly be. Maybe they reside on a higher level of a you know like a, a different a different level of uh, existence than we do. So from our perspective, if we were to see somebody or something that resides on a different plane of reality, maybe it might be a ball of light. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. we might not be able to actually perceive this object in its in its real form. So to us, maybe it might present itself as a ball of light. Who knows? You know, I mean, that's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit there, but like my opinion of this, uh, this, this situation, uh, this topic is, I think it was definitely something not a not a uh, a lighted weather balloon, not Jupiter. I, I think there's uh, evidence to convince me at least that it was something you know that was was uh, not our technology. I think it definitely could have been possibly alien technology. I don't yeah. know. I, I mean, but I definitely don't think it was a weather balloon. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what it seems like. And it's interesting you say something that's you know outside of our reality or you know, like a multidimensional thing, if you had... Or, uh, yeah, a, di a different plane of reality, Yeah, you know? If you had a piece of paper and you poked a pencil through it, if there were two-dimensional beings on that piece of paper, they would not see the pencil. They would just see a circle where you made the hole, right? They would just see a circle, yeah. not, not the whole pencil. Just the same way, if there was a fourth-dimensional object that was in our space, yeah. we would not see the fourth dimension. We would just see a sphere. That's, that's all we can that's get. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, ex that's exactly what I'm talking about. And that to me that I think that's what actually happened. Possibly. Right. Maybe there was, there was one witness that you're reminding me of, um, on for the Michigan swamp gas case, where one of the witnesses reported seeing a, like a sphere, but it looked like it was turning in on itself. Like that's one of the descriptions that has always mm. kind of stuck with me. Cause I'm like, what is, what does that mean? Like, that's insane. Like it's, they're describing what sounds like a 4d object in three dimensions or something. Like it's, I don't know. It just really tripped yeah. me out when I read that. And that's the kind of stuff, by the way, that you can find in the blue book reports. That's not often reported on. Like I've never seen that talked about anywhere else, but they'll, they'll talk about like the Frank Manor sighting, but there was like so much more, to that case than just the, the Frank Manor sighting and the Hillsdale college sighting. Like there's so much more going on there, but all right. Anyway, so that's, that's pretty much all we have on this case. I did find a little bonus case when I was searching around just because I was looking for the keyword of Gorman. So this was a completely unrelated case. This happened on highway 99 in California between grapevine and Gorman. I guess there's a, a city or town named Gorman in California. Yeah. Emily Cronin. Oh, do you know where that is, ETA? Gorman, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, there are some off-roading areas I've been around that okay. around that area somewhere. Sweet. So Emily Cronin and Jan Whitley uh, and Emily's six-year-old son, who was asleep in the back of the car, were driving at night in June of 1956. Both women got pretty sleepy, so they decided to pull off the road into a, like a rest area Kind of like, you know, one of those big, 
pull-offs, those dirt areas on the side of the road. You just kind of like pull off and stay there. You know, sometimes they're, they're view like vistas or viewing points, or sometimes they're just turnoffs, right? Uh-huh. So they decided to pull off the road and uh, take a little nappy poo because they were sleepy. After they parked and they settled in, they saw a light that they thought were truck headlights at first, and they also heard a high-pitched whining sound. When they heard the high-pitched whining sound, they felt paralyzed and they couldn't move. They remember the car swaying back and forth, and Emily said that she got a mental message telling her that someone would take her away. Then she saw a man looking into the car from one of the rear windows. And that was it. That's all they remembered. Later, they underwent hypnosis. Emily remembered a little bit more. She remembered a tall humanoid creature with a thin, flat face. <laughs> Creeping me out, dude. A huh. tall humanoid with a thin, flat face wearing black. He was looking in from the rear side window at the sleeping boy and appeared to be fascinated by him. There were two others there that told the That's curious. A creepy. Yeah, super creepy. There were two <laughs> others there that told the curious one that it was a mistake and that they should leave. And I, I pre- it doesn't say, but I presume it was all psychic because otherwise, how would she hear them? I don't know. The, yeah. the curious being shook the car and ignored the other two. And he shook the car for a little bit and watched the boy. Uh, and then the next thing she remembers is that the light and sound vanished and they were able to move again. Jan started the car and they fled the area. Jan underwent the hypnosis as well, but was unable to remember anything beyond, you know, the, the vague memory of what had happened. Later, they drove to the area and tried to locate the specific rest area where they were, but they were not able to, to, um, find the exact pull off. They weren't sure. It's like just a pull off area. They didn't know where it was, which is not surprising because, you know, when it's dark at night, things look very, very different than they do during the day sometimes. Well, and especially if uh, maybe you might have stopped off at a bar and got a little fucking drunk. You yeah. Know? Like, so <laughs> they might not have even been yeah, on the same road. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So that was a case that I just sort of randomly ran across and I it just super creepy. So I figured I'd just talk about it briefly. And there's a bunch more, interestingly enough, there's a bunch of abduction cases that Jan was connected to, like five other cases, abduction cases. It seems like she was involved in, you know, the hitchhiker effect, which we've talked about before on this show. Yeah. Oh yeah. So maybe I'll talk about those at some point in the future. I don't know, but it's one of these things where you just run across something randomly and find something really interesting. Uh, other than that, I don't know if there's any more evidence to the case, you know, physical evidence or anything like that doesn't appear to exist. It's just a story, but a really interesting one nonetheless. All right. Well, I guess sure. that's, that's about all we got for you this time. Thank you guys so much for listening. And until next time, keep it strange.